Hello and welcome to this third virtual she music interview. My name is Fabrizio Ferrari and our guest today is Robert Estrin. Hello Robert and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Born into a family of musicians, Robert Estrin is an acclaimed pianist, teacher and composer who has performed nationwide and throughout Europe. But Robert's real passion is for the piano itself its construction secrets and its fascinating history. This passion led Robert to create the Living Piano, a journey through the history of the piano. Well, Robert, could you please tell us more about this creation of yours? What is the Living Piano and how did this idea start? Well, you know, Fabrizio, I come from a musical family. My father, Morton Estrin, is a concert pianist, as, as well as my sister and my whole extended family are musicians. And, you know, I've performed for many years, but I noticed something, particularly in this country, which is that audiences are aging. I play concerts and oftentimes, you know, I am the youngster in the group. And so I felt a real need to try to bring younger people into the fold. And I came up with an idea of a concert experience that would show the whole history of the piano in one fell swoop. And so I embarked upon this project, and now in uh, conservatory, I actually majored in piano and French horn. I never really had a background in the early instruments. So the first step was acquiring them. So I got a harpsichord and uh, a beautiful two-manual French bottle harpsichord and a replica of Mozart's piano. And what I do now is I take these instruments out and dressed in period costumes, I do a concert playing all the period styles on the authentic instruments. I have a young protege, Bijan Tagavi, who comes out as young Mozart, and I perform this with orchestras and art centers, community centers, conventions, wow. and uh, for audiences of all ages seem to really like it, and it's a way to, to bring people uh, from a wide cross-section to the wonders of the piano. That's wonderful. Uh, I'm thinking, is a kind of interactive performance with your public where people ask you questions? Exactly, yeah. As a matter of fact, at the end of all performances, I allow the audience to come up to the stage and try out these instruments. And oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So we have a lot of fun with it. Wow. And uh, I was wondering, what, what kind of questions do they typically ask? Well, it depends. You know, I, I did a performance, for example, for the Piano Technicians Guild National Convention, and they had very technical questions. I also did it for the uh, Music Teachers Association uh, annual convention. And once again, different set of questions. Now, I did a, one in Santa Monica for an elementary school, and as you might... <laughs> might suspect yeah, sure. there were very different questions there so they, there's a wide range from technical questions musical questions questions about the touch and i do involve the audience particularly when i'm doing this for younger audiences i bring kids up throughout the performance so instead of just telling them about uh, how these instruments respond i'll say who has taken piano lessons i have people come up and i say play this and i ask them to describe the touch so that they can share with their peers uh, what these instruments wow, are like that's pretty interesting wow that's wonderful and i know also you're a, a passionate piano collector of course so my natural question is what mm -hmm. do you like the most about the piano the piano, uh, there's a lot of things, boy. <laughs> That's a great question. The piano, for one thing, is not only an instrument that is uh, intrinsic to all other instruments, in that if you are a viol solo violinist, flutist, French hornist, clarinetist, cellist, it doesn't matter, singer, 
When you play a solo performance, you are playing with a pianist. So a piano is a part of a, a piano trio. It's a part of uh, it's a part of a, a string. I mean, there's so many ensembles where the piano is part of. Yet the piano is also the quintessential solo instrument because you can play complete scores, and it's very gratifying to be able to play uh, complete music. Uh, and the repertoire is unbelievable. It's unparalleled. Wow. The amount of music written for solo piano exceeds all other instruments combined. Yeah, I, I understand. I, I am I'm a violinist, but I prefer to play the piano for fun. <laughs> yeah, because the violin is taking just, you know, 50 minutes to tune it up. And then, <laughs> and then we're ready to go. But <laughs> yeah, I love the piano too, actually. Yeah, yeah. And just out of my curiosity, how many pianos and uh, ancient keyboard instruments do you currently own? Well, you know, I, as I said, I grew up with uh, not only a musical family, but we had multiple pianos in our house. And, you know, if you go back to the golden era of pianos prior to World War II, there were hundreds of American piano manufacturers. In fact, at one time, there were 1,800 factories wow. producing pianos in the United States. Contrast that to the present, where last year there were only a total of 1,600 pianos built in the United States. So I've made it a personal mission to find these pianos and bring them back to life. So an adjunct of my living piano journey through time is my living pianos, classic restored pianos. And I have Steinways and Blutners and Baldwins and Becksteins, oh. all these instruments. Some of them are only, uh, you know, maybe 20 years old. Some of them going back to the 1800s, all meticulously restored. And because of the economy, nobody else is buying these instruments. And uh, I shudder to think about what happened to them. And as a result, also, uh, the prices are incredibly low for what you get because a new Steinway or Mason and Hamlin, which are the last remaining American piano manufacturers, uh, you know, started about the $40,000 range. Yes. And these instruments I'm able to acquire and have rebuilt. I can sell for a tiny fraction of that and help art centers and pianists and families who appreciate the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering, uh, do you have most of those pianos downstairs here? Yes, you know, we're fortunate to you know, have found this beautiful loft here in yeah. Orange County. And uh, the upstairs where we are now is actually really a concert amazing. space where we have Art District Concerts. Yeah. And uh, artdistrictconcerts.com is uh, information about that. Downstairs, I've got a good deal of my collection of instruments, and I also have a studio in Laguna Beach where I have uh, concert grands and some met. other... Where we met. Yes. I remember that. I have yeah. uh, a lot of uh, really large grands over there. Yeah, great. So I, I'll be sure to check them out before leaving downstairs. Absolutely. <laughs> great. And uh, looking ahead, uh, what are your plans for the coming years and what exciting events uh, you have scheduled? I'm bringing my living piano near and far, uh, Bakersfield, Temecula, wow. uh, some places. I finally outfitted my van so I can move the instruments myself <laughs> oh, wow. because that's been a major expense. And it's also been kind of, uh, a, a kind of more tension than, than anything else. It's like waiting for the movers to show up and kind of waiting, are they going to get here? So now I can control that so I can really bring my living piano to, uh, to more distant locations because I've concentrated mostly on Southern California, but now I, I can just pop these instruments in the van. It's been custom uh, fit. 
And so that, that's one thing. And the other thing is uh, starting this concert series here because, as you well know, uh, moving to the loft here in the Santiago Art District is a recent thing for uh, my wife Florence and myself. Sure. And we have started the uh, Art District concerts. And we have um, our first concert is actually uh, Friday. So we're starting with a big bang. And then we have a whole series planned of masters and mentors where we have some extraordinarily talented young artists on the first half and then seasoned professionals on the second half, which is a, a very nice uh, way to introduce the public to these emerging artists and to have the, uh, the young artists inspired by the uh, professional musicians. Wow, that's wonderful. I, I hope to be able to come because I'm really interested. Love to have you. <laughs> wonderful. Uh, so for everyone interested to, uh, in learning more about Robert Estrin and his living piano, please visit www.virtualsheetmusic.com slash interviews slash Estrin to find links to Robert's videos, his websites, and get in touch with him. So it's uh, now time to move on with the questions we have been collecting over the past few weeks uh, from our website audience. We received more than 30 questions and let our audience uh, decide which ones they liked best uh, through a voting system we have on our website. So here are the most popular questions for you, Robert, today. The first question uh, is by Ben, who asks, I will be interested to know how Robert feels about today's great advance of digital pianos. Digital pianos are an interesting um, offshoot and you know, the capabilities are far greater than what an acoustic piano is capable of. Uh, for example, you, you know, for people living in apartments to be able to practice with headphones, being able to tie into personal computers for music notation, for recording, and to be able to expand the sound palette with virtually any instrument or sound effect possible, uh, these instruments are, are terrific for that. And there's music uh, software for learning theory and all of that. But if your primary motive is playing the piano, there's really no substitute for the expressiveness that a piano has. As good as digitals are, you plug them in and they sound the same no matter what. You know, they're very easy and all of that. Uh, a, a real piano has, just when you push a key on a grand piano, you're setting in motion almost 100 parts. Whereas on a digital, you're setting about two or three parts. So obviously, it's not going to have the same level of expressiveness. As far as the sampling, while the basic tone is precise because they're recording real pianos, there's only so many recordings they can do, and there's only so many things they can take into account. Of course, they keep getting better, and for certain applications, they are actually terrific. Like, for example, if you wanted to put some background music to a video, whether it's a real piano yes. or a digital piano, makes not as much difference. Yes. And to record a real piano, you'd have to tune it, mic it. It would be a whole day project where this, you can plug it in, sure. boom, you're done. And it's probably good enough for the background on a commercial or something like yeah, that. Yeah, sure. From my personal experience, I have a digital piano, of course, that I use for work. And sometimes I use it just to play myself some girl stream because I enjoy some right. play sometimes. But my feeling is after a while I get tired mm -hmm. from the keyboard of the digital piano. Mm -hmm. So probably because of mechanics completely different. And exactly. My hands just hurt a lot after mm -hmm. a while. So yeah, quite. Uh, on a footnote to that, 
You know, years and years ago, um, back when MIDI first came about, I became one of the first dealers in the country to offer MIDI retrofits to acoustic pianos. And it occurred to me back then, and this was decades ago, uh, that somebody should take a real piano action and with a digital sound so you can at exactly. least get the feel. Exactly. And it finally has happened, and, and Yamaha has something they call the yeah. Avant Grand. And uh, they really, they have a real grand piano action in a box. And you know, for a practice room piano, or for a restaurant, a place, because I can tell you every conservatory I've ever been to, any music school, the practice room pianos sound hideous because yeah. you can't keep them in tune when people are playing on them 20 hours a day. Sure. The hammers get hard as rocks and they can never be voiced properly. And this is a great alternative for applications such as that. Absolutely. So the next question uh, uh, is by Peter Crane who asks, Robert, do you have a favorite manufacturer for top quality performance pianos and why? You know, as I said, today there, there just are two companies left, and I should mention a, there is a third new, relative newcomer, Charles Walter in Indiana, who builds about 60 pianos a year. Uh, Mason and Hamlin and Steinway are the others, and altogether they're only making less than 2,000 pianos. Uh, they're, they're both great pianos, uh, but you know, my favorites are, <laughs> it comes down to the individual piano. And, Beckstein and Baldwin and Knobby, all these companies from years ago, even A.B. Chase, companies you haven't heard of, Conover, uh, Hazelton. Mm. You know, when, you, when there were 1,800 piano manufacturers, you gotta figure that there had to be at least a couple of dozen that were top-notch instruments. And each one has its own personality. Like if you, had, if you, if you were family and you had seven kids and you said, well, who's your favorite? You know, you couldn't do that. And with pianos, I might sit down and play the exact same piece on, on three or four pianos downstairs, and I wouldn't even approach the pieces the same way. They inspire different performances. And perhaps I like uh, a Beckstein for Mozart, and maybe I prefer a uh, Mason and Hamlin for Brahms. So That's it's right. very difficult to, to pinpoint one instrument. And then each manufacturer, depending upon the era that piano was made, might be better or worse depending upon what the uh, standards were, who was building the pianos at the time, where they sourced their soundboards oh, and other materials. So the same brand during the different years? Dramatically different. Oh. Like for example, Steinway yeah. was bought by CBS in the 1960s. And the quality of the instruments in the 60s and particularly the 70s was, was no match for what they were doing, particularly prior to World War II when they were really had competition and they were producing phenomenal instruments. Yeah. And in the 70s they even uh, experimented with Teflon bushings oh, right. in their actions which caused problems. And so, uh, you know, Baldwin at the same time, just as a footnote, mm -hmm. Baldwin purchased Beckstein in the 1960s and their quality in the 60s and 70s was unparalleled. And then, uh, you know, well, they all had their ups and downs. Mason and Hamlin had a bankruptcy in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Their quality sure. really deteriorated. And now they're coming back in the ownership of Piano Disc. So you have to really know what was going on in the companies. Yeah, but it's now, is it now staying way back on the high standard? Steinway, you know, is making very, very good pianos. Personally, though, whenever I perform and I go to schools and I see they have an old Steinway and a new Steinway, most of the time, the old ones seem to have uh, more soul, more character. 
And perhaps, you know, one facet is, is these instruments do need to age to a certain extent. New out of the box, the Steinway is rarely as good as it's going to get. Yeah. My, my experience, uh, I'm coming from Europe, of course, and uh, uh, we are used to the German Steinways, mm -hmm. and I always loved them. I'm, I studied at the conservatory in Milan, and uh, we mm -hmm. used to have old Steinways everywhere, grand pianos. Right. Uh, when I came here in the U.S., I thought Steinway was the same, but actually mm -hmm. there are completely different kind of pianos. There are, there are notable differences. The action yeah. of a New York Steinway is completely different from the action of a Hamburg Steinway. Hamburg uses a Renner action, uh, whereas New York builds their own action. Uh, the soundboards are also a little bit thicker in the Hamburg Steinway, so there's a little bit more resistance. Uh, not to the feel, but to the tone, to get them. Uh, but sure. you know, then if you know, it's hard to generalize because you could go right now at the Steinway Hall and play uh, three different Model Bs, and they'll all be dramatically different. These are handmade instruments. It's not like a Yamaha mm -hmm. where you play uh, a C7. You, you play five of them, and the differences between them are very, very small because the manufacturing is much more precise. Yeah, sure. But sure. the benefit of a hand-built piano is when you find the one that you like, yeah. it might be that instrument that really suits you, that's a personal connection. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll talk about Yamaha later on. Sure. <laughs> All right, so the third question is by Nato, who asks, how would, you, uh, how would you describe the tone differences among Steinway, Yamaha, Backstein, and so on? This is a, a really good question that I've given a lot of thought to. And describing sound, uh, you know, in words it's is, is kind thing. of a, a, give me creative license here. <laughs> I actually uh, have in development something I'm calling the tone line, which shows all the piano brands and their relative tone. On one end of the spectrum, you have clarity, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have thickness, you know. Uh, which isn't to say that these are absolutes, but generally speaking, the European pianos tend to be uh, clearer, thinner, brighter. These are words to describe them. And the American pianos, fatter, diffuse, uh, creamy. Uh, so along those lines, though, you have, I think, the American pianos, and this isn't necessarily the current crop of Mason and Hamlin's, but in the vintage instruments, Mason and Hamlin is probably the fattest, most diffuse sound you'll ever hear on a piano. Steinway's got a little bit more of a, uh, a muscular kind of um, growl to it. And then you get to Baldwin, you've got a little bit more clarity, but it's still a fat tone. Then you start getting to the European pianos. On one extreme, you've got Beckstein and Dusendorfer, um, and pianos like Playel, uh, even Schimmel is in that category of the thinner, sometimes described as a bell-like tone. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you get to some of the other European pianos that close, get closer to the American sound, like Blutner, which has perhaps a, a rounder uh, tone, a little bit fatter, not quite the clarity of Beckstein and Busendorfer, but, but not as fat as Baldwin and certainly not as fat as uh, Mason and Hamlin. So it's kind of like, that's the way I perceive it. And of course, it's easy to find exceptions to that rule because voicing has a great deal to do with pianos. Uh, the, if pianos are rebuilt, the type of hammers that are put on. Uh, voicing is the, 
not only the shape of the hammers, but the hardening or softening with either chemicals or by needling them. Mm. And by needling them, you'll get a warmer tone rather than a brighter tone. But the intrinsic clarity versus diffuse fatness, uh, I think, is intrinsic to the scale design of these instruments. Very interesting. I was wondering, what about the Japanese? The Japanese, they be placed. You know, it's it's interesting. They they tend to be more of the brighter variety, uh, but there's a different tone that the Asian production pianos have because it's a completely different methodology. Mm. Think about it: uh, a Steinway or a Mason Hamlin that lists for sixty thousand. Uh, Yamaha will list for you know twenty five thousand, and a Chinese piano for twelve thousand. So there's got to be a difference. One difference is the way the plates are made. The plates of a Mason and Hamlin, a Baldwin, Steinway, any of the great American pianos are made with a wet sand casting. It's a process that takes weeks to cure the metal. Whereas a Yamaha and almost all of the Asian production pianos use a vacuum mold process. While just as sturdy, the metal is not as dense. So there is a certain metallic edge to the tone that these pianos are going to always have, which is beneficial for certain styles of music. You'll notice Elton John chooses Yamaha yes. because that tone is going to cut through a mix better than a Steinway sure. or better than a Mason and Hamlin. Uh, but if you're looking for the round warmth, when you play, really play a Yamaha, it's going to give you that, that, that edge. Whereas uh, on uh, the American pianos and the handmade German pianos, as you get bigger, it opens up. Mm -hmm. It makes it harder to get sure. louder in a way because you don't get to that, that point of, uh, of, of that brightness the same way you do. Even when they're voiced brighter, uh, you know, th there's a difference to the tone. And there are other differences, the type of woods that are used. Without getting too technical, I'll mention one yeah, other facet. Sure. The rim of the Asian pianos are made out of the soft Luan mahogany indigenous to the area instead of the hardwoods found in the American and German pianos. The soundboard being embedded into the rim of the piano uh, will vibrate, and when it hits the rim of the American pianos, the vibration comes back to the soundboard, and so you have a more sustained tone than the Asian pianos, where the rim vibrates, hits the soft rim, the soundboard vibrates, hits a soft rim, it cushions the sound, so you get a, a stronger attack and not quite the same singing um, sustain because it doesn't have the rim supporting that uh, sure. continued resonance. Sure, very interesting. So you can't actually compare the Asian pianos with the major? Not uh, generally, however, not generally, to exactly. be fair, uh, Kawai has their Shigeru series, which is a handmade so they have a piano. Level yes, series. and Yamaha has their S series, and these instruments are handmade instruments to the highest possible standards. And if you want to compare Yamaha or Kawai to, to Steinway or Mason and Hamlin, you really have to look at the Shigeru, Kawai, the S series, okay, Yamaha. I didn't know about that. So. Yeah. Oh, nice to know. Thank you. So the next question is by Jan Williamson, who asks, I have a German Schwechten upright grand, and the tuning pins are loose. Can anything be done to tighten them? Surprisingly, yes. Whether it's worth it or not uh, is a judgment call. Um, there are two things that could be done. One is a pretty involved thing, which is, if it's never been done before, they can be restrung with pins that are two thousandths of an inch larger, generally. It goes by, so if it has what are called 
two op pins in it, which are the factory size pins generally, then you go to four op and you can repin and restring the instrument. If the sound, if the pin block is still solid, doesn't have any cracks, this can be successful and you can get more life out of the piano. Kind of a shortcut, <laughs> believe it or not, it's crazy glue. I'm not kidding. Really? Yeah, yeah super glue. Uh, it's a technique that tuners know about. They don't talk about it very much because it sounds so crazy. Yeah, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> what they do is they put the piano on an upright. You have to put it up uh, on its side and uh, so that the uh, pins are facing up. And they just put a little bit of the glue in all the, uh, around all the pins. And believe it or not, this usually can, or in many cases, can give you years of uh, tuning really? stability in a piano that uh, might be toast. It's it's definitely worth trying. You have nothing to lose. I would never do it to a piano to sell because I couldn't be sure how long the process would last. But uh, it is something that you, you know if you have a piano that otherwise doesn't need any major work because you know just refinishing the case is thousands of dollars. Replacing mm -hmm. hammers is you know, a couple of grand. So, yeah, you know, you have exactly. to ask yourself on a piano that might only sell for a thousand dollars in this market, uh, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And sometimes it is for sentimental value uh, or if you just uh, love the piano. Absolutely. I agree. The next question is by John Booth, who asks, what years were square pianos made and why did the shape change to what we have now? Square grands were actually just a kind of a footnote, uh, an offshoot that happened for a little while and never caught on. Mm. It was a parallel, short parallel development in the history of the piano that doesn't have great significance. It was a terrible design, really, <laughs> because uh, they look like coffins. They're, they're seven feet long this way, so the keyboard is here and the piano is seven feet this way. Oh. The strings go this way, oh, instead of going uh, across this way as it does. It, and so as a result, this is the crazy thing about them. If you look at the keys, the keys and the bass are like several feet long to reach the bass strings and they get shorter and shorter, so the actions are just horrendous. And if you have one of these instruments, you want to restore it, there are very few people who work on them, and even if you get it all done, they're, they're not really uh, very see. good instruments. I see. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, the next question is by John Stonko, who asks, how was the decision made, and who made it, to move from the plucking to hammering the string? It was a harpsichord builder by the name of Cristofore in your native Italy, yeah. who is credited with inventing the piano. Of course, what he invented is a far cry from the modern piano, but indeed, he had the idea of developing a hammer action instead of plucking the strings with duck quills, as was the custom at the time. To accomplish this, a technical hurdle of escapement had to be uh, invented so that the hammer would hit the string and escape the string. Uh, doesn't sound like a major hurdle to overcome, but at the time it was a big deal. And that was the first, the modern piano incorporates a double escapement, so when playing rapidly, the hammer doesn't have to travel its full uh, throw. Very interesting. The next question is by uh, Peter Crane, who asks, which piano composers have written with a true sustenuto pedal in mind? A neglected technique? 
Yes, you know, it's funny. I played the piano since I'm a little boy. I've only getting to, gotten to use that middle pedal a few <laughs> times, you know. Uh, the sustenuto pedal, which is a selective sustain pedal, which only holds notes that you push down before depressing the pedal. So if you play a C major triad and while holding that chord, push the middle pedal, that C major triad will continue to hold, but no other subsequent notes played will hold. A lot of people wonder what it does, because if you don't push it at the right time, it doesn't seem to do anything. <laughs> yeah. That's why I gave that little explanation. It was only invented in the late 19th century, so the only composers really who use it are uh, the Impressionists like Debussy, Ravel, uh, 20th century composers, Prokofiev, Bartok, but even in those works, they're seldom used. Yeah, so, so those composers uh, such as Debussy mm -hmm. or Ravel, do they actually write on the score? To use that. Yeah, you'll have a part that there's no other way to negotiate the notes. Oh, you'll yeah, have an sure. octave down here holding, and then your hands are up sure, here. Sure. And you know, unless you want the whole thing to be a blur with the sustain <laughs> pedal, like you had to do with yeah, Beethoven, exactly. would sometimes write things like that, and you're left with this kind of half pedal, try to keep it going yeah. a bit without muddying everything else. So it's very useful, and you know, it, you can even use it uh, for earlier music if you find creative uses. Occasionally, I've I've used it in earlier music just to avoid the muddiness that you get with uh, using sustain pedal in such circumstances. Oh, that's a great tip to remember. <laughs> that's great. Okay, the next question is by Juan Sabera, who asks, how to prevent my piano to go out of tune too often? And I'm very interested in that. There's a <laughs> saying among piano tuners that you can't tune an out-of-tune piano. Hmm. And there's some truth to this, because if a piano gets low in pitch, for example, a tuner starts tuning one end of the piano, and because of the pressure exerted on the bridge, which then pushes down the soundboard, the other part of the piano that he might have already tuned, or she might have already tuned, will start to go out of tune. So one secret is, never put off your tunings. You should tune your piano even if it still sounds relatively in tune because the whole piano may, may dip lower or even sometimes go higher. And when that happens, the next tuning won't hold as long. <laughs> so the more often you tune your piano, you'll get to a point where you almost don't have to tune it. The other things are keeping temperature and humidity as stable as possible and don't play it very much. <laughs> Playing a piano will knock it out of tune. Sure. So you have to balance your enjoyment of the piano with... I, uh, I keep my tuning hammer around. I touch up all my pianos on a regular basis sure. uh, and have them tuned as often as I possibly can. <laughs> so that's, uh, okay. that's the secret. I'll try that. <laughs> okay, the next question is by Francis Powell who asks, how different were the strings of early pianos when compared to modern pianos? You know, if you come downstairs mm -hmm. and check out my uh, Stein Forte piano, you'll see the strings are very thin, uh, thinner than violin strings. Uh, the piano scale design today, because of the cast iron frame, uh, the early pianos were all wood, they couldn't support the string tension. The high tension strings, it's a much thicker string. Piano wire, if you go inside a piano and touch the treble strings, it feels like, it doesn't feel like strings. It feels like you're just hitting a solid piece of steel. There's something like um, 20 tons of, of combined string tension exerted on the plate. Whereas the early uh, pianos were just wood construction and have very thin, delicate, the whole mechanism is delicate. You and I can take uh, my forte piano, walk across the room with it, they're very light. Yes. The next question is by Joe Albritton, who asks, 
What changes in the piano design do you anticipate in the coming years? You know, as I mentioned, the, uh, the avant-garde that Yamaha has produced, I think, um, well, I was going to say sadly in a way, because the romance of a real piano, there could come a time when the, the, the sheer cost of a piano, not just producing it but maintaining it, will make instruments such as this much more commonplace. And personally, I welcome that in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. I would hate to see concert halls, you know, have uh, these electronic hybrids, but I would prefer to practice on one of those in a practice room situation, because if you've ever been in practice rooms, the instruments are so horrendously out of tune and, <laughs> and the voicing so bad that to have something that the tone never varies at all would be incredible. So I think that this makes a lot of sense. Just so that you know, though, these instruments don't come cheap. It's a $15,000 piano for a, you know, a digital uh, hybrid. Sure. It doesn't have strings. It has amplifiers and uh, digital sound reproduction mm. and some physical modeling characteristics, speakers, amplifiers, but it does have a real piano action. So I think th this will become more commonplace But we're also going to see the real piano sure. for years and years yeah. to come uh, because there is no substitute for what a piano can do. The total expression is unparalleled and the fact that the piano is still here sure. uh, 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 over a hundred years after the piano as we know it the, really has remained unchanged since about uh, the late 18, uh, eight, 1800s. So I think we'll see it continue for a long time as it is in its current form. Yeah, we'll, we'll be happy with, because of that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I have just my final personal question, which sure. is about my baby grand Yamaha. I have this pre-old Yamaha, mm -hmm. and it actually goes out of tune right. very often, something every mm -hmm. two weeks. Oh, boy. And I'm really tired of that. So I don't mm -hmm. know if I need to replace the piano, get rid of it, or is any thinking, any fixing that I can actually apply, can you help me with that? I'll come over with, with some crazy glue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll try that. Uh, you know, I'd have to know more about the instrument and the general condition, uh, what, what's worth doing with it. Uh, another technique that I didn't mention earlier is tapping the pins. Mm -hmm. If there's room, sometimes you can tap the tuning pins in oh, okay. a little bit further and get a little bit better tuning stability. Uh, You know, there's a lot of things that could cause that, depending upon how old the piano is, how much it's been played, if it's been restrung. Sometimes the restringing is sloppy. If the coils are not tightly wound, uh, or even the manufacturers, sometimes a piano is manufactured exactly. in a sloppy manner. Just tightening the coils on the pins uh, will help tuning stability. Tapping the strings at the bridges can help not only tuning stability, but it can enhance the tone quite a bit Ooh, because you nice. get better uh, uh, termination of the string on the bridge, which transfers the sound of the soundboard. So there are a number of things you could try uh, before giving up hope. Um, but, uh, you know, it might be that it could be a time to consider looking at other yeah. options for yourself. and. Oh, I might be able to help you with that. Okay. <laughs> we'll be in touch soon. All right. Sounds great. Okay. I think we are done with the interview, and uh, I'm going to go downstairs to try your piano. Beautiful. Now. So thank you very All much right. for, for joining thank us you. today. And thank you for watching.